Hi, everyone, and welcome to our podcast at the Rectory. I'm Ian. I'm Katie. And I'm Emily. We are three friends who at some point or another all lived in a tiny blue house in Cincinnati that we have affectionately named the Rectory. And together, we have filled it with... Memories. Long hours of PhD work. Parties. And a saggy three-legged couch we just can't seem to part with. I like that. Musical sting. Just want to welcome everybody to listen to us today who's tuning in to your regular podcast. We have a really important person here in Cincinnati. I used to say this before the pandemic and it was funnier. I used to say if we ever had a plague situation in Cincinnati uh, and Anne Delano Steiner caught it, the whole city would go down because she knows everybody here. But now (laughs) we've all been inside for a year. That's lost some of its fun. But Anne is a Cincinnati native. And she is a woman with four post-secondary degrees, uh, one from Columbia and two from the University of Cincinnati, both a master's degree and a PhD in history. And Anne, when did you officially become Dr. Steiner? I'm not sure. When do I get to be doctor? I'm not, I'm not even positive. Although, you know, that's true. When you defend your dissertation, they come back into the room and they say, you're now Dr. Steiner. So I guess, I guess I was Dr. Steiner August 14th of 2020. Yes. Anne is involved. She's one of the founders and promoters of the Over the Rhine Museum here in Cincinnati. She's deeply involved with many, many uh, justice issues in Cincinnati and is an expert on built environment. And Anne is one of the people when I interviewed at the University of Cincinnati who her story about the city and the department was so compelling that I just thought, I think there's a place for me here. And so and thanks so much for coming on and like sharing yourself with us and uh, everybody who listens to At The Rectory. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. This is great. I really had no idea that I had been so influential in uh, getting you to stay at UC. So I'm pretty proud of myself tonight for that accomplishment. We're really glad to have you here. So this season, we are talking about uh, love stories. And in our little introductory episode, we talked about how it's not that we don't, you know, care about sort of these big, you know, passionate romantic love stories, but we feel like um, those get a lot of airtime in our culture, both in like secular culture and in like Anne and Emily and I grew up in uh, a pretty um, intense and culturally focused like white evangelical culture that was very, very mm-hmm. into marriage and the romance um, narrative, but there are so, so many other stories that we just don't hear as often. And when we talked about this season, I said, we have, we have to talk to Ann Steinert because she has a doozy. Um, (laughs) Love story. (laughs) Yeah. In fact, at your dissertation defense, you told everyone, and this is Seneca, the love of my life. Oh, so yep. who, who is Seneca, the love of your life? Oh, Katie, you kind of made me cry. So hold on a minute. I got to get it together. Um, okay. So here's the story. Seneca is now is my now 10-year-old son. And I am a single mom to him. When I, you know, I, I sort of always, or for a long time, I knew that I wanted to have kids. 
Um, and I actually remember to speak to your point about the sort of socialization of the value of romantic love and how you're supposed to have this big fairy tale moment where some person on a white horse comes and sweeps you <laughs> off your feet and completes you or whatever. Um, I actually remember a moment, gosh, I must have been in college where I had this sort of epiphany that felt so powerful, which was like, oh, wait, I can have a baby before I get married. Like, I don't have to. It's not that A has to or B has to follow A. You know, it doesn't there isn't this set order that you're always trained and indoctrinated to believe that you have to have if you don't have the the man, I'm a, you know, in this case, if you don't have the man to complete you, then you can't be a mom, right? So I carried that around for a long time. I always knew that, you know, if I didn't, even if I didn't have the perfect partner, I still wanted to be a parent, um, but I'm also very busy and professionally driven. And so uh, it took a long time before I made time to make that happen. And I, um, mm. I lived in New York City at, for a long time at the end of that time, I, I knew, you know, I was like 38 when I moved back to Cincinnati from New York. And I was like, well, if you're going to, you know, clock's ticking, if you're going to um, have a baby, you need to do it. So I used a sperm donor, used donor sperm and got myself pregnant. And I like literally had it delivered to my house and used a syringe that you would buy. At, I bought it at the CVS for Impacted Wisdom teeth when you want to like squirt out your impacted wisdom teeth with uh you know salt water it was that syringe and um i i that's amazing yep that's right did the like little science experiment in my bedroom and um conceived seneca steiner um he so i he was conceived believe it or not on the immaculate conception which is i was raised catholic i'm not catholic anymore but i was and so you know, that's a sort of a holy day of obligation for catholic people and i just it made me it makes me laugh you know that <laughs> december 7th i know that was the day that seneca was conceived um it's funny and so i was you know pregnant the regular amount of days. In fact, I was I was pregnant, <laughs> pregnant more than the regular. I was a little overdue by the time <laughs> I was born. Um, I was old, you know. I was thirty nine when I conceived, and I was forty by the time Seneca was born. Which actually, now at fifty one, doesn't seem really old at all. But for for a new mom and the first pregnancy, that was you know fairly yeah. far along. Yeah, and it's interesting. The the medical. Speaking of the narratives that we've been taught, right? The medical establishment really pushes on you this narrative that you're an you're an old mom and that you're that's a health risk and so i refused to buy any of that and i didn't do any of the tests that they want you to do i didn't have any ultrasounds and i didn't have um you know any i didn't even have there's a test for gestational diabetes they make you drink this sugar syrup that basically shocks your baby and they oh. monitor how freaked out your baby is by the sugar syrup to see if you're diabetic or not. And I was like, mm, I'm not doing that. And so, you know, I just really believed that my body was healthy and my women's bodies are built to bear children and that my body knew how to do this and that my baby was going to be healthy and great. And he was, uh, yeah. And I, I mean, my pregnancy was not, physically super easy. You know, I, I think that morning sickness stinks and aches and pains just because my body was not in great 20 year old shape, you know, but then uh, I think 
story that Katie's really getting at is the story of Seneca's birth. So um, I I knew that I was going to have a home birth. So I um, kind of had this great uh, collection of folks who were going to support me in my birth. I, I used a lay midwife in Ohio. Midwifery home birth is illegal, basically. And so the only way to have a home birth is with a lay midwife who does not have a medical degree or does not carry malpractice insurance, because of course you would lose your malpractice insurance for delivering some baby at home. But there's plenty of great lay midwives throughout Ohio. And so I had um, a great midwife. I had um, a couple family members with me and a friend. Um, and I, in fact, my cousin had come from New York City and was sleeping in my dining room. And I woke up at, you know, four o'clock in the morning or so. And I was like, oh gosh, I feel so nauseous. Like what's going on? And then I remember a friend who is also a midwife saying that you'll know you're in labor because it feels like the worst nausea you've ever had. And I was like, oh, hey, check this out. Um, <laughs> so I, I got up and I went to the bathroom and sure enough, my water broke while I was washing my hands. And oh then I went back to bed and I was like, okay, well, you're supposed to get as much sleep as you can because, you know, yada, yada. So I went to bed and got up at like <laughs> seven and told Cynthia, my cousin, who was in the dining room, like, hey, Cynthia, guess what? my water broke at 4 30 or whatever it was and i'm you know i think i'm in labor and so we started paying attention to how far apart my contractions were and it but it, long story short it wound up being a very long day i was in labor all day and mm. um there were some complications i had uh seneca was posterior um and so no. i had back labor right so every oh. contraction would like kick, kill my tailbone and then I don't know how um, frank you want me to be with your listeners, but <laughs> like the details about childbirth. Um, We've been I pretty a, frank about some things. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I had a lip on my cervix, so my cervix wasn't quite flattening out, wasn't opening up all the way. And so that was like creating an extra little web almost a space that was hard to, uh, mm. made it eventually made it hard to push. So, you know, I just had a couple like bummer things like that. And uh, at one point, well, two things happened. At one point, the midwife said to me, hey, I brought this oxygen in case your baby needs it and we've been giving it to you and we're not gonna use it up on you. So if you don't get this baby out soon, we're transferring you to the hospital, which was mm -hmm. totally not what I wanted to do. So I was like, okay, here we go. And then another family member who was there said, looked at, at one point looked at me and, and said, you need to focus on the place where it hurts the most and push right into that place. And I was like, oh no. But then I, I was like, okay. And I had like maybe two pushes and I blasted Seneca out and all was well. And, and um, it can, we can talk more about the, the you know, realities of birth later if you want, but yeah. the part of the that Katie knows that is it's about to make me cry again is that so you know Seneca's born and they hand him to me and I look at him and oh. yeah sorry I can't tell the story without crying <laughs> um I looked at him in his eyes and I said oh it's you and I already knew him like I don't know how or like what it where in my life he had been before but i definitely recognized him and i knew who he was 
Isn't that amazing? That's amazing. I'm, I'm verklempt too, and I've heard this story before. <laughs> I've told that story before. Oh, yeah. It's so incredible. Yeah, and I, I mean, it's real. Like, it's not just some make-believe, like, well, maybe you were just dreaming, or maybe you were delirious. No, no. I am positive that I, that the soul inside that little body and and I had met before. Mm. Yeah. Um, so that's that's the story. And um, yeah. we've been alone together for now almost 11 years. He turns 11 in three months. And um, he's amazing. He is a great little pitcher on his Little League team. He, he was pitched three no-hit innings in his last game. So Whoa. I'm super proud of him. Yep, today was his... Today was his last day of school, so we went out for ice cream with all the gang from school. It's been so nice to be back in person so he can be with his friends. Coronavirus virus was a struggle for us, for sure. So, yeah, he's my love, for sure. When did you, because introducing him, like Katie had told that story about at your dissertation defense, you said, and this is Seneca, the love of my life. How, did you always introduce him like that to people? Because that, <laughs> that is kind of... Uh, reclaiming that narrative or changing that narrative, even in the language that you're choosing to use. Yeah, I appreciate that. It's true. I don't always in- introduce him that way. Um, it's I. It's funny. I do try to challenge the narrative um, about parenting and children with some in 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 many ways or in several ways. Um, and one of them is that I, I give a lot of public talks. You know, I'm frequently standing at a podium talking about Cincinnati history and they everyone asks for me to send a bio ahead of time that they're gonna read to introduce me. And I most often, almost always, include in that final sentence um, of my bio that despite all these other accomplishments or things that I do, my most important, my life's work is par- being a single mom to my 11-year-old, 10-year-old Seneca, whatever he, right? And it is amazing. I never cease to be amazed at the number of people who cut the last sentence, you know, who don't do my whole bio. Yeah. So very frequently that sentence gets left out. And I and it's because there's a perceived separation between what you do as a parent and what you do professionally. Right. And so my effort there, my attempt is to to rejoin those things or to put them together and say that, um, my parenting supports my intellectual work and my intellectual work supports my parenting and that they're, I, I have a, a one whole integrated life and they're together. Right. And that people don't like that. <laughs> I mean, some people do and some people read it. Like I just, I just gave a talk last month at the Cincinnati women's club and I loved it because um, they read that last sentence and people cheered. So that was, that's never actually oh. happened before. So that was great. Yeah. But a lot of times, you know, it just, people don't think it's appropriate to mention in a, intellectual or academic talk. So I do, I do sort of consciously think about the way that I talk about him and the way that I claim him as the love of my life for sure. I was just going to say like as a single parent, you know, if I got a teacher, I have to get this project finished. Like he just has to come and be there when it's happening. Yeah. It was really important to me though, that he was at my dissertation defense because I, I, I mean, you, I don't know if you remember what I said. I'm not sure I even remember exactly what I said, but you know, he, he has given up a lot to, for me to finish this degree. You know, there's all kinds of time when I should have been, or I could have been, I guess, throwing a ball in the driveway or playing board game or whatever, but I had to work. So 
it's partly his degree too, because he's definitely sacrificed a lot. And Anne, when you were telling the story of um, all the circumstances like surrounding his birth, I feel like that's also, that is a love story about a lot of other people in your life that A, supported this decision that was not mainstream. It wasn't unheard of, but it's not mainstream. You know, right. um, yep. you, you made that decision from beginning to end. You didn't wake up one morning and go, uh-oh, how'd this happen? I'm pregnant, you know? So right, people- right supported you. And I think, I, I don't want to tell your story or, or get it wrong, but for a while, your mom was kind of the main support for you in Seneca, right? The first two years of his life as you parented. Is that is that right? Well, so when he was born, I was teaching in Cincinnati public schools. I was teaching high school. Well, first of all, I think high school teachers or teachers in general are the most underappreciated segment, little sliver of the universe, you know, and that um, I hope COVID has made people realize how hard it is to teach kids. <laughs> and, and, and I realized I had this, I had a particularly of all that, I had a particularly intense teaching job. I taught something called senior project, which um, is a really long research paper and community engagement activity that the high school seniors at the school where I taught did do still, I think it involved, you know, so much grading. So kids were turning in drafts of fairly long chapters and they're high school writers. So they're not great writers. They, some of them of course are, but some of them aren't, they need a lot of correction and edits. It was a constant process of grading. You know, I can't remember, but maybe I had 110 students or something. Right. So I was over totally overwhelmed. I had I should also say that I had pretty significant postpartum anxiety. I, um, as Katie knows, I also have Lyme disease and one of the symptoms yep. of Lyme disease is anxiety. And so I don't know that my anxiety was caused by Lyme disease, but I certainly had pretty intense postpartum anxiety. So I had a lot of fears that I wasn't taking care of my kid well enough. And then mm -hmm. when summer came, by the time summer came, I realized I needed to quit my job. As I was mulling around quitting my job, my mom came to me and said, you know, I really want Seneca to have like a really great life and I want to support you. And my mom had just come into a little inheritance from her husband's mother. Her, my stepdad's mom had died, um, who was a wonderful human being. And you know, that was a big loss, but silver lining of that was that she left some money. And my mom said, we would be happy to support you for a couple of years. So she said, what do you think you need to live on? And I gave her a number, which was very modest. I live really quite modestly. Um, and so she said, okay, I think we can do that for two years. And so for then from the time that Seneca was about nine months old through for the next two years, I was able to just be home with him full time which was amazing. Wow. Yep. And, you know, honestly, now when I look at how busy I am and like we went on vacation a couple of weeks ago and I, and I suddenly just like turned off all the screens and didn't respond to work emails. And I was like, Oh my gosh, this is what it felt like. Like, I know I'm so in tune with you and I know what you're doing and I know what you're thinking. And like, we're having like so much fun together. So it's, it was a really amazing, special kind of formative time. Unfortunately, it happened in his life before he really remembers it. I think obviously he got that foundation and he uh, he feels the results of having that strong foundation, but it's not like he remembers all the times we, you know, walked around the block to look at the construction workers or all those things that you do with little kids, you know. Yeah, so that's really special too, that there were so many people in your life who said, we're going to commit to the two of you. Yeah. And yeah, and uh, your cousin coming from New York to be at the birth and to support you through that. And 
um, those are those are also really profound love stories that don't that we don't always tell. And it's funny that you mentioned my cousin Cynthia because she is like the most loving, genuine human being I know. Like she exudes love. Like she just blankets you with love when you're around her. It's amazing. Oh. And I don't, it's, I don't, you know, it's like, it's just in her DNA, you know, it's just how she operates in the world. It's just so insanely beautiful and magical. I'm super lucky that I was born in a family where I get to have her for sure. I love these stories and what you, when you are sharing like practical realities of birth, right. And practical needs like your mother, <laughs> like these are also things that we don't talk about. We don't talk about like the magic of women's bodies in the technical details of what they can yeah. do. And, but also when you um, made that decision, you're opening yourself up to being vulnerable and having real physical needs. Right. And what, what sometimes I can do is I can be real defensive and not really let people in. And so to choose a path that requires that for you has opened up all these avenues of love to come pouring through because you needed support in literally giving birth, you know, like people were able to step up and step into your life. You know, I think it's really important that women talk to each other about birth and yeah. pregnancy and nursing. You know, I, I nursed Seneca for almost, well, four years and yeah, it's and it's a long time. And, you know, people were by the end, you can't talk about it anymore. Oh. You know, like, and he's just nursing at night to fall asleep. It wasn't like right. I was in nursing, a, nursing a big kid at the grocery store anymore. Right. But, um, but it's definitely like, you're, it's like something that people shame you for, for sure. You know, that like, you're like, I love that my body could nurture my kid. I mean, breast milk and breastfeeding is like the most magical thing. And I know it doesn't work for every woman and I'm not shaming any woman who doesn't want to do it or who tries and doesn't work. But like, for me, I took Seneca on plane rides when he was very young because you you have this instant thing that breaks the, you know, like, you know how you like stretch to make your ears pop? Well, sucking makes that happen, right? Like nursing is the perfect way to take off and land on a plane. Like nursing has, and it fights disease. It gives him great immunity. It's like amazing stuff. And it's also made Seneca like feel so connected like he was he knew that he was connected to me and that he was supported and loved and that he had this like kind of foundation of love that was rooted in physical touch it's right it, but yeah and then you know eventually he's like oh yeah I don't want to do this anymore and I'm like game on yeah. that was great yeah and I, I do think there's something about um as we're talking about love stories uh individual culture individualism versus like a com more communal culture keeps popping up and i do think there's something about like that nursing long term that american culture western you know culture is kind of like well he's his own person now and so he can't be dependent on you and and we're like no they gotta have their own room and their own space and their own you know like place because this is how we create selfhood right it's like this very particular process and yeah. so i love i love that you doing the thing for your body and doing the thing for your child and not, not, you know, not feeling those pressures or not succumbing to those pressures is really encouraging. And I feel like there are a lot of, you know, they say the, the mommy, you know, verse online or in the internet, it's just like <laughs> vicious. It's so difficult. And I feel like your through line is that embodiment and that 
You're like, this is the thing that I trust that my body knows how to do. And I trust yeah. in that. But I mean, <clears throat> I was judgmental about stupid things too. You know, I remember when Seneca was really little, like before he would have been eating solids, I saw some kids walking out of a Starbucks with Starbucks cups. And I was like, <gasps> who would let their little small child have Starbucks? You know, like Starbucks makes hot chocolate. You know, there are totally legitimate things that you would have your kid drink at Starbucks. And also, even if that's a triple espresso, it is not my place <laughs> to be judging what you feed your kid, you know, I, like it. So that actually has been a really big lesson in parenting. Well, you've actually hit on two of them. One is opening myself up to being vulnerable and needing people. I used to be very self-sufficient and I it used to be very hard for me to ask for help or take help when people offered it. Um, and I still struggle with that a bit. But around parenting and um, childcare, it's been really important. My parents are my primary childcare support system, um, both of them. My mom takes them one day a week and my dad takes them another day a week. And that has been invaluable. I certainly couldn't have finished my degree without them, but I had to learn to be way more, let less, much less judgmental and just let, like everybody gets to live the way they wanna live. You know, if that's your choice, game on, that's your choice. And they, I have no right to make any, judgment about whether your choice is right or wrong for you. Like what, why did I ever think that I could insert myself into your shoes and, and make decisions that about what was right for you? You know, it's been good. Yeah. And, and I feel like talking with you over the years has challenged me in that area as well. Put it's, it's put pressure, not you putting pressure on places where, you know, I talk about like clutching my pearls and stuff, but just the process <laughs> of talking with you has made me go, Ooh, I wonder if I'm like really gripping hard onto something that I just need to loosen up on or, oh my gosh, no one has ever suggested to me that that could be a legitimate question or way to live my life. Like I, there were, there was no other narrative than the one that I had. I've never even looked at it. And I think, I think in a lot of ways, and I think you've maybe even brought this up that you and I are, despite some very similar, similar parts of our life trajectory are quite different, like in personality and probably even like personal choices that we've made. And you've been very open with me, both about inviting me. I remember you, and I won't specify what this was on a thing that other people listen to. You invited me to ask you questions if I ever needed to ask somebody questions about something. And right. I was I remember that. I remember feeling very loved and supported just in that offer, even though I haven't taken you up on it at this point. Um, <laughs> but yeah, but you, I think you've kind of just decided to also open your life up to me, even though you've either assumed or know for sure that there's some stuff that I've chosen or done that's really different. Um, yeah. from you. And that's another way in which I've both felt um, supported and invited in and also have maybe felt some of my like tight clutching fists, you know, loosen a little bit um, on some things. So can I say thank you to you in public for that? Yeah, that's, you're welcome. That's amazing. But you know, I am, I am constantly repeatedly struck by the degree to which you are really great at diffusing tough situations. Wow. Well, I mean, you may recall that there was a, a situation where someone the the grad student lounge got to feel kind of uncomfortable that there were some right you know you you called us back to um be i don't know committed to each other and each other's academic work and to um really focus on what we were there to do and you do it in such a kind of gentle way that it's no one can really be mad at you you know like or not even be mad at you but like i don't mean that they would be mad at you i mean but like it's like you're right like oh yeah of course like here mm -hmm. comes katie with the wisdom it's like so 
beautiful the way that you help us be our best selves. Oh, thank you, Anne. Love fest. Woo. I was going to say, I feel like I'm witnessing another like love fest, <laughs> which is so well. And what it's, what it's reminding us, right. Is that love like only multiplies. Like when you invite love into your life and you have these incredible connections, like through the learning and through the difficulty of those connections, you just have broken open in a really particular way that invites more in. That's wonderful. Yeah. And mm. I think a particular thing that we've been critical about, uh, Ann Steinert on this podcast is to some degree that the particularities of the evangelical culture at the time when we grew up was love kind of like shrinks and excludes. Like you have this baby mm. and now, you know, you find your partner and then you guys hold yourself away, you know, in your own burrow. And then you have a baby and you do it even more. But what I guess, I mean, I didn't know you before Seneca, but my experience has been that somehow, you know, having Seneca and loving Seneca has also opened you up to other people and that has like grown something in you um, to love more people. And I'll say, I will, I will not answer any questions about this, but a number of years ago, <laughs> I, I loved someone in a way that I realized, oh my gosh, I actually love everybody else in my life more because I love this person. And that was right. not also not ever something that I like contemplated as being a possibility and totally shocked me that this had occurred because yeah. it seemed yeah. like that was, you know, the kind of thing where you go now bury yourself away because of this thing that happens. And instead a lot of things have felt more open and more beautiful and more loveable because yeah, of for sure. Yeah. I mean, I think you just nailed what, being in love feels like, right? Like mm -hmm. everything is so much more vivid and beautiful and the colors are brighter and the sunset is more beautiful and everything is just amplified by loving, really deeply loving someone. You know? What is some more language around love or what would you say in your wonderful experience of love kind of resonates or is required? Like what how deep love is something you said? What is that? Well, I mean, okay, that is such a hard question. Um, <laughs> so what happens to me when you ask that question is that I have a physical response to that. I do not have a, like my brain kind of is empty or, you know, like what? But but I what I know is that there's a physical manifestation mm -hmm. of that love, you know, that like mm -hmm. I am. Um, I get, I like, like when I told the story about Seneca, you, you know, I got kind of teary, right? So that's sort of like letting myself be moved by how much I love someone or how much I let them love me, like allow, like it, it, it requires like opening a gate or, or, you know, a doorway or being willing to let something in that I, and I think most people are pretty um, reserved about or keep that door closed a lot of the time. And so I mean, I think for me that like sort of deepest expression of love or the, the sort of evidence of it is the is the relationship in which I easily throw open the door, you know, where I'm like, yes, I will love you. And yes, I will let you love me. Like that ease of it is a, is a big piece of what it has been in my life, at least, you know, it's if, like loving comes easily, you know, like loving feels like the right thing to do when it happens. Yeah, yeah. And again, that resonates, yeah, in a place that isn't my head, right? Yeah. It isn't, it's like un, beyond language in that way where you can kind of instinctually understand safety and welcome and hospitality and 
all of those things kind of create yeah. that. Wow. Yeah. And that reaction and that movement, like we were all crying, right? Like, cause there's just something. <laughs> yeah. We need that. We need to be more open to that. And that's part of what telling that story can bring. And, you know, you talking about us all being a little teary just made me think of something that I cannot tell that story about meeting Seneca for the first time and knowing him um, without crying. And, and it's because there is some unknown mystery in it, right? It's that I don't understand why I knew him or why, I, you know, wh where I had known him before. Like, I do not get it. And um, that, like, allowing yourself to just trust the mystery and believe in it, I know that sounds like <laughs> way more religious than what I usually say. But um, but really, like, there's something in the, the like, the magnitude, the, the like, overwhelming mystery of it that is the, that's like the most powerful thing and i think that there is some overwhelming mystery in love right like and how does this happen how do how does it occur that i feel this way and that this person feels this way and that we met and came together how how what that is so outside of my normal life experience how what is there is it's just such an unknowable mystery that that comes true you know uh, one of the professors at in our department, actually, Jeff Zoller, came and spoke to a group that I'm a part of, and he said, don't, like, stop talking about, like, loving everybody. Go home and call your grandmother. And he said it in this very intense way that Jeff Zoller says, and we all kind of, like, sat back, and then I think several of us went home and called our grandmother. grandmother. Yeah. yeah, yeah. This also has a real intense specificity to it. This is such a treat. Yep, it's been great. Thank you. Yeah, guys. I'm glad that you two didn't meet each other when Anne Rothus was here more on the regular because I feel like you have a lot in common kind of at the at the deep spirit level and, and care about a lot of the same things. And mm -hmm. yeah, Anne Rothus was another one of those people that was just like, Here, come here, you you belong here. Let me let me plug in with you and, and make this your home. So cool. I appreciate well, I'm glad you made this your home. Me too. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much. All right. Yeah. It's great to meet you yeah. and to be with you, Katie. Yep. Take care. Yeah. We'll meet for dinner soon, Ann Steiner. Oh. Excellent. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. See ya.